good morning. My name is Ross. I'm one of the elders here at New Life Gladstone. I am not Pastor John. He has more hair than I do. He's taller, and we'll leave the rest to your imagination. Um, he, uh, I was, he asked me to tell you that he's off ministering to boys, high school boys at a football camp at uh, Linfield University, and I don't know if the entire Rex Putnam football team is there, but he's there with whoever showed up. Uh, I, it didn't sound like he was having fun, but he was, he was there ministering, as he says, ministering to the children, <laughs> high school children. All right, so before we uh, get into today's message, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our privilege to be here this morning to worship with you. We worship in song, and we've done that. We worship through prayer, and we've done that. We now worship through hearing the hearing of your word. May it impress upon us what you would have to tell each one of us this morning. And we ask these things, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a couple of you know, maybe three, I'm a science and math guy. Always have been. I grew up in Damascus, which is just a little bit away that way. And for the most part, my summer evenings were spent out in the lawn, looking up in the sky, looking at the universe. Now, I don't know what my parents thought. It's probably a little tough to see your son just standing out in the middle of the yard, looking up at the sky. What's he doing? Oh, he's dreaming again. But that's what I did. I read science fiction during the day, and I looked at the stars at night. And I, it just fascinated me. Now, I didn't know much about what I was looking at at that age, but it was fascinating nonetheless. And I even had my own telescope. It was about like that, about four inches round. And I took pictures with my brownie camera, and I told people about it on a rotary phone on a party line. If you don't know what I just said, <laughs> come see me afterwards, and I'll explain what a brownie, a party line, and a rotary phone is. I can describe the telescope, but it, it wasn't very powerful, but uh, it was better than a good set of binoculars. I could, I could really enhance the, the doors on my neighbor's barn. The moon didn't come in very clearly at all, but that was not even close to, if you put up that picture, what we see from the James Webb Telescope. I think that's what I was wishing for when I was out there looking up in the sky. I couldn't see it, but that's what we get today with today's science. Now, in my wondering about the universe, I concluded that there's no way I could know what was happening at all. But it was fascinating anyway. I assumed that through science, I would eventually understand better. And as an adult, I understand better, but there's still a lot of mystery out there. I even look at what the James Webb puts up and go, wow, that's mysterious. Even though I know it's dust and gas, it's still mysterious. And science only partially makes it better. 
Now, I know some of you have a different relationship to science than I do. Some of, some of you may even go so far as to discount science altogether. But imagine this. God reigned in his universe. He spoke, and the universe and the science behind it came to be like that. Both the science and the universe in an instant. Now, we can argue as to what it looked like, what it sounded like, how long ago it was, or how God did everything he did when he created, but one can argue against the fact that the universe and science is. I also must say that science alone does not support everything. As, as a scientific type of guy, I discount some of what uh, is interpreted. But I do agree with something that Erwin Schrodinger, an Austrian theoretical physicist who achieved fame for his contributions to quantum mechanics, that's a mouthful, uh, he once said this, when it comes to those things that are most important, who I am, where did I come from, where am I going, who is God and what is his will for my, my life, science is deathly silent. You see, over time, Science opens doors, but it doesn't open all the doors. In science, there are doors open and doors yet to be opened, and there are doors that science does not touch. Now, faith and our understanding of God is similar to that. that our initial faith opens doors, but it doesn't open all the doors all at once. In faith, the Holy Spirit sets about the business of growing us and opening doors all along our journey of faith. In faith, there's always things that we know now and things that the Holy Spirit will reveal later. We never know it all at once. Now, believe it or not, that brings me to Psalm 97. I'm wondering how I'm going to tie these two together. Me too. <clears throat> but Psalms 97 also speaks loud and clear in the areas where science is deathly silent. Without a doubt, we're living in a day when, in an age where the bulk of humanity does not understand who God really is and what he's like. Although God has clearly revealed himself through nature and other means, many people reject that knowledge. And it seems to not be getting any better. They also reject the revelation of God's inspired word and the idea that the Lord reigns everywhere. Spurgeon once said, yes, I quote Spurgeon every now and then. For those who know Pastor John, every week we get a little bit of Spurgeon. Well, I couldn't dishonor him by leaving Spurgeon out of this, too. Spurgeon once said, no doctrine in the whole word of God has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. The fact that the Lord reigns is indisputable, and it is this fact that arouses the utmost opposition in the unrenewed human heart. The unrenewed human heart. By rejecting the knowledge of God and discounting God's reign, the world removes themselves from accountability for their actions, or so they think. If there is no God, they reason, there is no judgment. Uh, some are going to be terribly surprised. 
Psalm 97 has two primary ideas. It begins with the declaration, the Lord reigns, and ends with what should be our response to that, rejoice. If we really believe that the Lord reigns in our lives, rejoicing is our only response. Now, I didn't tell Ben this, but I was going to stop the sermon there and actually start rejoicing for the next 45 minutes. I wouldn't put that on you to come up with 45 minutes worth of songs. But we could stop there and just start rejoicing. But you get to listen to me. There's more in Psalm 97 than simply rejoicing, so I will cover those things as well. So another theme that comes out of this psalm, besides reigning and rejoicing, is believers should live righteously in joyful anticipation of the coming reign of the one true God. See, the middle part of this psalm and the end talks about the future. Not what's happening now, but the future. God's reign when he comes back. So this morning, I want to begin with an idea that seems to be conspicuously absent in our world. Joy. We may experience temporary happiness, fleeting moments of emotional elation, but true joy? As we examine our world, we have to recognize that there's an absence of true joy, the kind of joy that is present regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Some may call this a simple contentment, such as Paul expressed in Philippians 4.12, which says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. But I would venture to say that true Christian joy is more than simple contentment. It's instead an enthusiastic lifestyle that is infectious to those around us. It is living with cheerfulness and energy that others can't help but notice and be affected by it. And we've seen those people. You get around them and they are just so joyful that you can't help but go, wow, I'm starting to feel it too. It's infectious. They rub off on you. And and we live our lives. This morning, we're going to explore what I believe is a true key to living a joyful life. Understanding that the Lord reigns. With that, let's take a deeper dive into Psalm 97. The psalmist begins in verse 1 with an expression of faith. He says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Now, God proved himself king of the nations by subduing those countries that had warred against Israel. But if the Lord reigns over them, he reigns over the earth. In this case, the most distant shores should rejoice in him, that is, worship him willingly, finding him a better God than their national ones. So God is above everything in his creation. Who has reigned as king? Who's in charge of the world? The psalmist says, it's Yahweh. Some of you, when you look at the world, are not so sure that this is true. The world is chaotic and messy, and always has been. And you wonder what Yahweh is doing and if he really reigns supreme. But when we say that it is Yahweh who reigns as king, this is in part to an expression of faith. We believe, we know, 
that Yahweh reigns as king. This should give us joy. And I want you to remember that for the end of the sermon, where there's something more special. Psalm 97, 2-5 continues this thought, where he says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Now, two things, two themes come in here and are intermingled uh, in this theophany. Uh, theophany is an appearance of God. One, the dazzling splendor of his being when it comes into view. He comes not just to be seen, but to act with irresistible power. The mountains melt like wax, not literally, but meaning that no opposition can hold out before him. And the second theme is the righteous character of his reign. When he appears, it is not just to strike terror into people, but right wrongs and to administer justice. Those who want to do right have nothing to fear in him, for the corrupt and the, and the unjust should tremble. The psalmist described God's position as sitting in sovereign judgment over the entire universe. The throne is veiled in clouds and darkness, symbolizing that God reigns far above human sight and understanding. The clouds and darkness also serve as a shroud that conceals humanity from the radiant glory of God's holiness. It's what he did when he met Moses. He was shrouded. But we can't look upon his holiness. It is so bright and brilliant that we can't look on it, just like Moses could not look on God on Mount Sinai. Now, this is shocking to our contemplation as we usually think of God as a God of light and no darkness resides within him or near him. Well, this is an image, like I said, that came about on Mount Sinai. This is just a vision of God that we need today when the tendency to deny the reality or the awfulness of sin is so prevalent. Our view of the necessity of the atonement will depend largely upon our view of the holiness of God. Light views of God and his holiness will produce light views of sin and the atonement. And this view of God is, in Psalm 97, is drawn generally from the book of Exodus. Exodus 19.16 says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Exodus 33.20 that says, You, that is Moses, cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The psalmist continues and says that God rules in righteousness and justice. These holy attributes are at the foundation of his reign. God is the judge of the earth, and he always does what is right. His rule is built on righteousness and the fair execution of justice on all who fall short of his absolute holiness. When God's righteousness is spoken of in the Bible, it occurs in the context of his rule and reign as king and judge over his creation, as it does here in verse 2. Now you may be asking yourself, wait a minute. I thought Satan was rule over the world. Well, no. Satan has a major impact. 
on the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of most patient and most people. But Satan's impact also encompasses the world's philosophies, education, and commerce. The thoughts, ideas, and speculations and false religions of the world are under Satan's control and have sprung from his lies and deceptions. But that does not mean that he's the ruler of this world. More of an influencer. God is still sovereign, supreme, and superior. When the Bible says Satan has power over the world, I want to be perfectly clear that God has given Satan domain over unbelievers only. As believers, we are God's, not Satan's. Do you believe that? You should. Satan does not have any ultimate authority. That remains with God. As judge, God not only acts according to what is considered right, his revealed will also serves as the highest standard for what is right. Taken together, God's revealed will and God's actions on behalf of his people are internally coherent and never in contradiction with each other. Many today find difficulty on allegedly Christian grounds that the concept of divine judgment and thus find it hard to accept judgments in the Bible as the work of a Christian God, a God who is of love. They forget the other side, the judgment side. Yes, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. However, every one of us will give an account of himself to God eventually. We will stand before the judgment seat of God, just as Paul stood before the judgment seat the Bema of Galileo in Corinth, Corinth, and so you and I will stand before the creator of the universe and be judged. Saved, yes, but judged nonetheless. In verse 3, Psalm 97 says that he consumes his enemies with fiery righteousness, all who reject and rebel against him. Because of the Lord's righteous judgment, he is to be feared. Now, fear in this context is not being in terror of God. But the fear of the Lord involves being overwhelmed by how extraordinarily brilliant God is and how in awe of him we should be in full respect and reverence. That's what the fear of the Lord means. The psalmist described fire, a symbol of God's judgment, shooting forth from his presence and consuming his enemies. All who reject and rebel against him must face the fiery judgment demanded by his uncompromised holiness. Verses 4 and 5 describe where God bears witness of himself. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The Lord bears witness to his glory through the forces of nature, lightning, earthquakes, and volcanic eruptions depicted as the mountains melting like wax. That's a nice picture because that's what it looks like when... Not the oozing volcanoes, but the ones like on Hawaii that melt their sides. This image may also be a prophetic picture of the day of the Lord, which it says in 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now you may be asking yourself, Maybe. 
If we experience a deadly earthquake or volcano, are we witnessing God's glory? Well, perhaps, yes. But in Psalm 97, this picture is a metaphorical picture of a future state, the coming of the Lord. The picture is that of a storm sweeping across the land and destroying everything in its path. The storm also speaks of the future day of the Lord, when God will judge the nations of the world. The fire and lightning remind us that God is a consuming fire. His judgments bring him glory and manifest his holiness to a godless world. This poetic language attempts to describe the final judgment of God upon the earth before he establishes his kingdom. Lewis Drummond of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary said this, When everything else is over and said and done, only one thing ultimately matters. Do you know God? Can you face eternity without him? The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is God and will forever reign in his righteousness and holiness. This means that his judgment of all unbelievers is sure. Knowing that, we need to proclaim the truth about God's holiness and about his righteousness and judgment. We need to point people to the God of the Bible, a God who loves humanity so much that he gave his only son for our sins, but who is also a consuming fire. All who reject him will suffer the full measure of his fierce wrath. Moving on to verses 6 and 9, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth, and you are exalted far above all gods. This passage simply shows the distinctive nature of God's reign that separates it from all other self-proclaimed regimes. At the heart of this uniqueness is the fact that he is the one and true and only God in the universe. Notice the all-inclusive expressions that are set in verse 7. The psalmist says, All who serve carved images, those who boast in idols, will be put to shame. It's not that some worshipers are false gods who will recognize his soul deity, but all of them. Even the gods themselves will recognize his superiority. The psalmist concludes that there is only one right response. All the gods must worship him. The psalmist next addresses those who trust in worthless idols. He issued a stern warning. Those who serve and boast in idols will be confounded and shamed. Idol worshipers will sink in disgrace on that day, and their gods are proven to be nothing but lifeless objects, and satanically inspired creations of human imagination. Not real. In godly worship, believers recognize God for his attributes and express this through adoration, praise, thanksgiving, service, worship, and living holy lives. Worship continues the primary calling of who we are here. I think Pastor John mentioned this last week or the week before, that our primary purpose here is to worship him. 
in all the things that we do. According to Alan P. Ross, a professor of divinity at the Beeson Divinity School, idolatry is the ultimate rejection of the sovereignty of God. Anything that rivals God in his rightful place as sovereign Lord is a violation of the first principle of our faith. And that first principle is the first commandment that means anyone who worships anyone, that is relationships both real and imagined, or anything like fame, fortune, power, stuff, except the Lord God commits idolatry and God will deal with them. Sometimes worthless idols are much less obvious and a little bit more subtle. Here's a story from R.C. Sproul that illustrates the subtleness of some of our idols. It's a little long, but I couldn't cut any of it out. On his first day of teaching his class of 250 college freshmen, R.C. Sproul carefully explained the assignment of three term papers due on the last day of September, October, and November. Sproul clearly said there would be no extensions except for medical reasons. That is, are you on your deathbed? And at the end of September, some 225 students dutifully turned in their papers while 25 remorseful students quaked in fear. We're so sorry, they said. We didn't make the proper adjustments from high school to college, but we promised to do better next time. He bowed their pleas for mercy and gave them an extension, but warned them not to be late next month. The end of October rolled around, and about 200 students turned in their papers, while 50 students showed up empty-handed. Oh, please, they begged. It was homecoming weekend. Who can give up homecoming weekend? And we ran out of time. Well, Sproul relented once more, but warned them, this is it. No excuses next time. You will get an F. The end of November came, and only 100 students turned in their papers. The rest told Sprawl, we'll get it in soon. Notice the attitude change. Went from fear to, eh, you're going to let us go anyway. We'll get it in soon. Sorry, Sprawl replied. It's too late now. You get an F. The students howled in protest, that's not fair. Okay, Sproul replied. You want justice, do you? Here's what's just. You'll get an F for all three papers that were late. Was that the rule, right? The students had quickly taken my mercy for granted, he later recalled. They assumed it. And when justice suddenly fell, they were, un they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock, and they were outraged. But they knew it was coming. These students' idols were placed in front of their true goal. Like them, when God's judgment comes, will we be shocked and outraged and surprised or relieved? That's up to you. What is the result when one finally sees God, the true God? Verse 7 notes that a flood of light comes to every part of the human being exposing darkness evil, and sin. Now this directly applies to us in that we need to help others see the light 
and let God's illumination expose their sin. Now, it's not like Oprah. You've got a sin. You've got a sin. You've got a sin. It's not quite like that. That's not quite our job. But laying out the options available to the sinner is something that we can do. And we are asked to do. We do not to expose everybody's sin or expose their weaknesses, but just give them the options. Psalm 97 is clear that all who serve idols will be put to shame. The people of the world sell their souls to these idols constantly, and some of uh, what I'm about to read will be a duplicate of what Pastor John did last week, but it bears hearing again. Here are a few of the idols of today. Money and possessions. Relying on, on technology for validation, not to do your homework. Relying upon technology for validation of who you are. People who are publicly known, celebrity culture, abusive power or control, or extreme loyalty or idolization of symbols, myths, and leaders. Psalm 97 says that the gods behind the images are now exposed and must pay homage to the one true God. Worship him, all you gods, he says. Now the Hebrew word here for gods, Elohim, usually means our own God. But it also may refer to angels, judges, rulers, or even to the heathen gods or deities. So it's, it's applied elsewhere. In verse 7, the psalmist goes from describing Yahweh, who fights for us and protects us, to talking about all the other Elohim. What he says really is a prayer. And it says, May all the ones serving images and the ones boasting and worthless gods be put to shame. Verse 8 moves from there and says that when others are judged, in some quarters of the earth there will be gladness. In addition to the termination of all idol worship, the prophesied day of the Lord will bring God's judgment to all evildoers. In effect, they stand for all of God's people who will be vindicated and see their enemies avenged on that great and terrible day. A.W. Tozier once said, An idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. So, whether physical or mental, idols are idols and have no place in our lives. As followers of Christ, we are commissioned to be his witnesses. We must stand firm against the world's pressure to silence his voice. When we point people to the truth, we are not trying to force our beliefs on anyone. We are not to force someone to believe when they do not want to. And I'm reminded of Matthew 7, 6 that says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This means that some people will not be receptive to the truth of God's love and his ways and will reject holiness to a fault, and we should not waste our time continuing to share it with them. We interpret this idea of not wasting what is valuable before those who don't appreciate it. The point is clear enough that some who do not value the truth of God once we share it with them is there. Even if it has been a billion zillion times, sometimes we just need to stop and continue praying for them, but stop laying our pearls before that swine. The last part of Psalm 97, verses 10 to 12, encourages true believers 
all who love the Lord to hate evil. Starting in verse 10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He perseveres, he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. The exhortation in verse 10 begins with a wisdom statement. To love God is to hate evil. That is, hate what God hates. Here, love and hate don't mean what it means in our language of today. In context, to hate means to reject. To love means to choose. In other words, reject what God rejects and choose what God chooses. John Piper said of this view, Do you hate your sin more than you hate the devil? The devil cannot put you in hell, but your sin can. Your sin is your biggest problem in the world. Let that sink in. Your sin is your biggest problem in the world. God will not tolerate evil, and we must not either. And that evil is what is defined in Scripture as evil, not what we think it is. So let's not think up evils. It's what Scripture says is evil. While we as sinners must recognize sin in ourselves, we must not lead us to minimize the evil of sin in ourselves or others. The solution to sin and evil is not toleration or whitewashing, but forgiveness from Christ. Only then can we rejoice in Christ's coming. So what is our response to all of this? It's in verse 12 where it tells all of God's children to rejoice in the Lord and give thanks to his holy name. That is, have joy. Have joy. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up at this time and uh, maybe play a little bit behind me while I'm finishing up. Psalm 97 tells us that the Lord has reigned. The Lord is reigning, and the Lord will reign. And we do not have to choose which one is correct, because they are. In the statement, the Lord has reigned, there has never been a time that the Lord has not, was not reigning supreme over his created universe. Before time began, he existed and was reigning. The Bible doesn't make a case for the existence of God, It simply assumes his existence, as it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. A simple statement. There has never been a time when he wasn't. There has never been an instance in time when he wasn't reigning. He is also reigning now. As dismal a state as our world may appear to be in, God is on the throne and is orchestrating events to suit his purposes for his glory and for the good of his people. He has not recused himself from current events or turned them over to another. He reigns now just as he always has. And finally, the Lord will reign. There is no upcoming election. There is no term limit to God's sovereignty. There is no expiration date on his lordship. For all other interpretive difficulties the book of Revelation presents, one thing is very clear. God wins and reigns supreme. 
And the outcome is not in doubt now, nor has it ever been. There is no debate. There can only be only one. The Lord reigns. So does this bring you joy today when you think about it? Does he reign in your life? The biggest thief of joy that we have not that we have is not Satan or his minions. It resides within our own hearts. It is our own desire to be the reigning Lord over our own lives. It is a thief that will constantly seek to reassert those desires if we are not submitting to Christ's Lordship over our life daily. He who was there at the beginning and before creation, he who came in the form of a baby, who did not consider it lost to take the form of his creation, he who brings light into the hearts of those who are submitted to him can find joy because the Lord reigns. Does he reign in you today? So I ask, does the Lord reign? Now I'm going to go through a series of statements where the end is asking that question or making that statement. If you want to say it with me, if you uh, are bold enough, when I get to that spot at the end of each phrase, go ahead and say it out loud. The Old Testament is clearly the Lord reigns. So you can say, when I say clearly, you can say, if you wish, the Lord reigned. All right, you ready? When God created everything that exists as the ruler and creator of everything, clearly the Lord reigned. When the waters of the flood came upon the earth and all that was on the earth died, clearly the Lord reigned. When Abraham struggled with God's promise of a nation, clearly the Lord reigned. When Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed, clearly the Lord reigned. When the sons of Israel were sent into the desert for 40 years and Moses was denied, clearly the Lord reigned. When the people fashioned the golden calf to worship, clearly the Lord reigned. When Gideon doubted that 300 men would prevail against 10,000, clearly the Lord reigned. When David continually disobeyed God and yet found favor, clearly the Lord reigned. When Judah's sins were punished by Babylon conquest, Jerusalem's fall, and as a result, Jeremiah lamented, clearly the Lord reigned. When Job was tempted by Satan's challenge and human wisdom failed miserably, clearly the Lord reigned. When the temple was completed and the messianic age did not come as expected and the people did not repent, clearly the Lord reigned. When Jesus predicted that he would suffer, die, and rise from death, and his closest companions did not understand, the Lord reigned. When Jesus threw out all who bought and sold in the temple, the Lord reigned. When Jesus' authority was challenged, the Lord reigned. When Jesus was betrayed, the Lord reigned. When disciples left Jesus and fled, the Lord reigned. When Pilate asked Jesus, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? The Lord reigned. When Jesus was on the cross suffering and dying, 
the Lord reigned. When Jesus left that tomb, the Lord reigned. When Jesus was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God, the Lord reigned. When marriages begin falling, failing, and there seems no hope, the Lord reigns. When there is chronic illness or mental health struggles and specialists have no answer, the Lord reigns. When plans are ravaged and the future appears uncertain, the Lord reigns. When jobs are lost and those prospects are in sight, the Lord reigns. When there is political turmoil causing divisions in the family, the Lord reigns. When there are financial struggles and there seems no way out, the Lord reigns. When there are struggles in the faith and the Lord appears to be very distant and unapproachable, the Lord reigns. When immoral social influences become increasingly mainstream and form a new morality, the Lord reigns. When there is pain and despair from broken relationships, the Lord reigns. When parenting becomes really, really hard, the Lord reigns. When the innocents are seized of their life, the Lord reigns. When we are faced with certain death and unforgiving mortality, the Lord reigns. When there is rampant unbelief, lawlessness, extremism, and distortion gripping society, the Lord reigns. When life is just tough and we are forced to endure whatever is unpleasant, the Lord reigns. So I ask, does the Lord reign? Yes, the Lord reigns always. Amen.